1: Hello, and welcome to In the Word, a ministry of Calvary Chapel of Orlando. We hope that God speaks to you today as we continue our study, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, with Senior Pastor Will Ramirez in the book of Joshua. God God had proven His power and His mercy time and time again. He had brought the Israelites out of their enslavement in Egypt and brought them through the wilderness of their wanderings and disobedience. They were finally in the land, God giving them the victory over the inhabitants of Canaan. They conquered the walled city of Jericho, burned down the city of Ai, and had slain five of the Amorite kings that had banded together to fight against Israel. God was the one that fought for them. We join Pastor Will in Joshua chapter 11 verse 1. Please excuse the sound quality of this message. There were some technical difficulties when this message was first given.
0: At this point in time, the central plateau of the land of Canaan has been conquered. The southern half of Canaan is conquered. All that remains is the north. And while some of the strongest kings of the south allied to fight Israel, Israel is now going to face the largest army they've ever seen when they go to push north. When we read the Bible, like this is one chapter, the entire northern campaign, entire southern campaign, they're in one chapter. When we read the Bible, it's easy to forget and distance ourselves from the fact that these were real people doing something that they had never had to do before. I mean, I don't know about you. I've, I've never been in a battle. I've never looked over across and seen an army that outnumbered me and thought, how are we going to beat these guys? I've never experienced that. But we have our own challenges. We have our own challenges armies or battles that we face in life. And we've had the experience of going, how are we going to do this? How are we going to pay that bill? Or how am I going to get through this difficult relationship situation? Or how am I going to get through this illness? Or how am I going to get through this conundrum of God's promise says this, but looks like this? We all have faced those things and when we're in the thick of that battle. You look over and you, it looks scary. It's easy to distance ourselves from the fact that These are real people doing something they never had to do before. They've never been this way before. If we're going by sight or numbers and we look at what they're about to face, this challenge is absolutely terrifying. And the only way Israel is going to succeed, in the same way the only way we're going to see experience that victory in Jesus that Joshua is about, is by knowing who's in control. Amen? So chapter 11 is all about knowing who's in control. So chapter 11, verse 1. Now it came to pass when Jabin king of Hazor had heard those things that he sent to Jobab king of Madon and the king of Shimron and the king of Akshaph and to the kings that were on the north of the mountains and the plain south of Chinneroth and in the valley and in the borders of Dor on the west and to the Canaanite on the east and on the west and to the Amorite, the Hittite, the Perizzite, the Jebusite in the mountains and to the Hivite under Mount Hermon in the land of Mizpah and to his long lost cousin Bernie up in the mountains. I mean, there's pretty much all that's left out, right? And they went out, they and all their hosts with them, much people, even as the sand that is upon the seashore in multitude, with horses and chariots, very many. And When all these kings were met together, they came out and pitched together at the waters of Merom to fight against Israel. And the Lord said unto Joshua, Be not afraid because of them. For tomorrow about this time will I deliver them up all slain before Israel. You shall huff their horses and burn their chariots with fire. Now, we're introduced to this guy named Jabin. He is the king of Hazor, the Bible tells us here. Jabin was either a common taken name or a title for the king of Hazor. Because in Judges 4, another Jabin, the king of Hazor, becomes a problem for Israel later on. Whether this was a title, you know, they just said this is the Jabin, or whether it was a taken name. like I guess the closest thing maybe we might see in our culture these days is when a new pope is elected, he'll take a new name that was very common for kings back then. And so they would take a name, a specific name that would be passed down, a common name. And Jabin may have been one of those. This guy, the king of Hazor, well, what is Hazor and why is he sending runners and messengers to all these people to get them to come together? Well, Hazor is about nine miles north of the Sea of Galilee in the Hula Basin. If you you go to Israel with us, we won't stop at Hazor because it's still being dug up. It's an amazing sight that you can go see. It's just, it's hard to get into all the areas because they're still doing archaeological work there. It was the largest city in Canaan, covering an area over 200 acres. The international trade route from Damascus ran right through it, making it one of the most important city-states in Canaan. It had the upper city on the top of a hill, guarded by an earthen rampart, and then the lower city sprawled around the hill for about 175 acres. Hazor is interesting because it wasn't discovered until the 1950s. Because of that, there's a lot of doubt cast on this city that Joshua later on in this chapter will call the head of all the Canaanite kingdoms in the north. But when Israel became a nation, one of the first archaeological digs that they launched, you got to understand a little bit about the scenario. When Israel was under the control of, uh, even when the British had it, it was still under the control of Muftis and, and Arabs, Muslim Arabs. Arabs are just there's Muslim Arabs. And they didn't want any evidence to be found that the biblical account was true, that Israel had been in the land, that they had occupied that area. So they didn't allow any archaeological digs to take place in Old Testament biblical sites, okay? One of the first things Israel's did when they became a nation is they started launching all these digs to prove the fact that the biblical account's true, that Israel was the original inhabitants of the land after the Canaanites, and that they lived there for a very long time. Hazor was one of the sites that they first began to look for. It's now the largest archaeological site in Israel besides Jerusalem. They've discovered so much, the city that for centuries people had critiqued and said, we don't even know if this biblical account's true. This guy, the king of one of the most important cities in Canaan, the most important city in the north, when he heard those things, what things? The things of chapter 10, that the entire south part of Canaan, the entire central plateau had fallen to Israel. He sent, the word there means to send out messengers. He sent out messengers to Jobab, king of Madon, And to the king of Shimron and the king of Akshaf. Now we don't know the exact location of these cities, just the general area. That they're mentioned by name here is because they were the strongest royal cities in the north, and they formed a line south of Hazor from the Sea of Galilee to the Mediterranean. They were like three fortress cities that if you got past these cities, the entire north of Canaan was open. Israel's is interesting. They call it fingers in the north. They call it the five fingers. There's five mountain ranges, probably isn't the right word, more like hills. But there's these five. Fingers is what they call them, and there's valleys in between. And so on these hills is where you would put these fortress-type cities so that they kind of stood as bulwarks to protect the the valleys that were past them in the north. And so these three cities formed a kind of a line, we would call them forts in our day or more modern times, of defense for the north. And if you got past those, the entire valleys, the Hula Basin, all that area would be wide open for you if you were an invading army. These are the cities, the kingdoms, that would be hit by an Israeli attack first, laying open the entire north if they fell. So he needs these guys on board first if any confederacy is going to work against Israel. But Jabin, as I read earlier, doesn't stop there. He recruits everyone who'd be exposed if these cities fell. It says that he also sent to the kings that were on the north of the hill country. When you head north of the Sea of Galilee, the elevation keeps rising until you reach Mount Hermon, far to the north. In that hill country, he sends all to the kings that are around Hazor. He also sends, it says, to the kings of those of the plains south of Kinneroth. Now, Kinneroth is another name for the Sea of Galilee. So this was the valley through which the Jordan River flowed south, the Jordan River Valley. Kinnereth, it was a city on the north of the Sea of Galilee, which is why they often called it the Sea of Kinnereth. You see where the river goes south out of the Sea of Galilee? That is an entire valley area. It's not on the map, but if you go far to the south, that's where Israel's camped, in Gilgal. The northern part of the Jordan River Valley has been untouched by Israel at this point. So he sends to all those kings that are in the valley, you know, he's saying, even though Israel hasn't touched you yet, if it gets us, they're coming for you. Hazor is way up there by north of Galilee. He recruits everybody way down in the valley, in the Jordan River Valley. He's bringing in everybody that he can. He says then also in the valley. That's actually a, a proper name. It refers to the Jezreel Valley, the Megiddo Valley is, is how we probably know it better. These would be the royal cities that were there in the Jezreel Valley that you see in there between Mount Carmel and Beshan. Then it says, and in the borders of Dor on the west. Dor was a royal city on the Mediterranean coast, 12 miles south of Mount Carmel, and eight miles north of Caesarea. So I mean, this is a huge region that he is recruiting to bring in their armies. And that's not it. Verse 3, and to the Canaanite on the east and to the west. So these were non-royal cities that didn't have kings that were in every direction from Hazor, west, east, basically anybody he can get to the Amorite, the Hittite, the Perizzite, and the Jebusite, in the mountains, and to the Hivite under Hermon in the land of Mizpah. You see Mount Hermon way up there in the northeast. Mizpah is probably not the name of a city. The word Mizpah just means watchtower or high point, so it's a title more than like a city name. Those who lived far to the north from the foothills of Mount Hermon lived in the heights, which is why they, they called it Mizpah this big, huge circle of that entire map, he's bringing in everybody and their cousin and their kitchen sink to come and be a confederacy to ally against Israel. He figures, Jabin does, that the South fell because they didn't enlist everyone's aid. Remember the South, it was just five kings that fought against Israel. And so he thinks, you know what? The selling point's clear that everybody will buy in. The strongest Southern Kings couldn't stop Israel. I've got our strongest. I've got Madon, Shimram, and Akshaf on my side. And if we fall, there is nothing to stop Israel from getting to you. So how about we all just join together now rather than go down one by one like they did in the south? Perhaps if we're all united, we can defeat Israel and their God. Now, why is all this pointed out? You would say for historical purposes to know who Israel fought against. Maybe. Just to show how big the army was. Okay, maybe. Here's why I think all these places are listed here. This shows that every single northern Canaanite had a choice. Every single northern Canaanite had a choice. They had seen the fall of the south. They had seen everything that had happened to those who had opposed Israel and their God. They could see that, reverence God and repent, or to a literal man, remain stubborn and fight. And so what did they choose? To a man. They choose to fight to preserve their idolatrous, wicked, and selfish lives. Look at verse 4. And so they went out, they and all their hosts with them, much people, even as the sand that is upon the seashore in multitude, with horses and chariots, very many. Due to the nature of how the battles have been fought thus far, Israel hasn't had to encounter the horse and chariot yet. This will not only be the largest army that Israel's ever faced, but it will also be the first time they've had to face chariots and horses, cavalry. The chariot back then was the equivalent, modern-day equivalent, of like a tank. You know, a tank, yeah, maybe if you get enough men on it, you can eventually get somebody close enough to put a grenade nearby or disable it and then kill the people inside. But a tank is worth dozens of men. A chariot was like that because of its speed, its height. The soldiers were up with their javelins and their spears. I mean, they could just rake people all around them and run them over, wreak havoc on the lines that you would set up to fight. And so here they are out in full force to fight against Israel, And against their God. I have to ask the question why on earth wouldn't they just repent? (laughs) They had to have seen that daylight was extended for 24 hours. It wasn't something they missed out on, it affected them. They had to have heard of rocks falling from the sky to chase down the the army from the, the south, the kings from the south. They had to have heard of the walls of Jericho falling down. And they also had to have heard of how Israel spared the Gibeonites. We read about that and they probably think, how can you be so foolish as to fight against this God and his people? But lest we mock their foolishness, realize our current culture is going to do the same exact thing. Look at Revelation 16 with me. Talked about in Revelation chapter six, where the sky is going to open up and men will know where the judgment's coming from. They'll know it's coming from the throne of God. They will cry out, hide us from the wrath of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb. Hide us from him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb for the day of his wrath has come. They will know where the judgment's coming from. They won't look around and go, wow, asteroids or whatever. Crazy things happening in the sky. And No one's going to think that. Everyone will know where the judgment's coming from. So as judgment keeps on coming throughout the time of the great tribulation that Revelation covers, look at Revelation 16, verses 12 through 21. It says, And the sixth angel poured out his bowl upon the great river Euphrates, and the water thereof was dried up that the way of the kings of the east might be prepared. And I saw three unclean spirits like frogs come out of the mouth of the dragon, out of the mouth of the beast, and out of the mouth of the false prophet. For they are the spirits of demons working miracles, which go forth unto the kings of the earth and of the whole world to gather them to the battle of that great day of God Almighty, the campaign of Armageddon. And then, of course, Jesus gives encouragement to the struggling, persecuted, tribulation saints. He says, Behold, I come as a thief, lest is he that watches and keeps his garments, lest he walk naked and they see his shame. And he gathered them together into a place called in the Hebrew tongue, Har Megidon. And the seventh angel poured out his vial into the air. And there came a great voice out of the temple of heaven from the throne saying, It is done. And there were voices and thunders and lightnings. And there was a great earthquake such as was not since men were upon the earth. So mighty an earthquake and so great. And the great city was divided into three parts, and the cities of the nations fell. And great Babylon came in remembrance before God to give unto her the cup of the wine of the fierceness of his wrath. And every island fled away, and, and the mountains were not found. This is not something that you wake up the next morning, turn on CNN, and go, oh, that happened. I mean, you get that, right? This is not something that you read about two days later on your Twitter account. This is something that's going to affect the entire world that's in rebellion against God. Verse 21, and there fell upon men a great hail out of heaven, every stone about the weight of a talent. Everyone is affected by this. But look at the reaction. But men blaspheme God because of the plague of the hail, for the plague thereof was exceeding great. Now, they're going to shake their fist at God, blaspheme him, instead of repent, even though it's obvious where it's all coming from. But it gets better. Look at Revelation 19. Now, it is done. That's the last judgment, the seventh bowl. And what comes now? The return of Christ. So we jump to Revelation 19, and we come to the return of Christ. And look at what it says in Revelation 19, verse 19. Jesus is going to appear riding on a white horse from the sky with all the armies of God. And look at Revelation 19, 19. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to make war against him that sat on the horse and against his army. Do you see that? First, they'll shake their fist. Then when they see Jesus returning to bring peace on earth, (laughs) to fix this mess that they've made, that we've made, they're going to all stop fighting each other and they're going to come together, band together to fight against him. Now, that's going to be over like that. Zechariah tells us exactly what will happen. He will speak and they will melt. And the Bible says, a blood will flow to the horse's bridles. It's literally a bloodbath. It's not a war. It's not a fight. It's just over. He speaks and it's over. But when Jesus comes back, mankind will literally be in the midst of wiping themselves out at Armageddon. But what do they do when they see Jesus? We don't need you. We've got this. We're just fine. We're on the verge of utopia. Leave us alone. And if not, we'll make you. They'll all stop fighting each other and set up to fight against Jesus, just like these Canaanites. Solomon wasn't wrong when he said there's nothing new under the sun. The only way that life is different or new is above the sun. Life in the sun, right? That's why Colossians, I think it's chapter 3, it says, set your mind on things above where Christ dwells, right? You look under the sun, there'll be nothing new here. Yes, the world will ebb and flow. Things will be better sometimes. Things will be worse sometimes. But it's always moving towards that conclusion. <laughs> Revelation nineteen nineteen that conclusion so there's nothing new under the sun just as the canaanites resisted the lord here we say why on earth when they repent because we don't change we want our ways and we'll fight anyone who will keep us from them so verse five when all these kings were met together they came and they pitched together at the waters of merom to fight against israel They join their forces together, they assemble together, they pitch their military camp, and they make it at the waters of Merom. Now, Merom is a spring about eight miles, I think it's northwest of Hazor. And from this position, they would be able to defend against Israel from whatever direction Israel came. If Israel wanted to hit them by coming up the Jordan Valley and then hitting them from the east they'd have good defensive ground there. If Israel wanted to come up right through the central plateau and hit them there in the valley of Jezreel, come marching right through the valley, they had the high ground, they could defend it there. If Israel wanted to come up the coastal plain, try to hit them from the west, that ground there was the perfect place to set up a defense whatever direction Israel came. They would always have the high ground. It would put Merom, the spring there, created a wadi. Because of the time of year this is, the wadi would be running and have water in it. And so it would put a body of water between them and Israel, whichever way Israel came. It would be the most defensive position that you could put yourself in with a superior force and having chariots and cavalry at your disposal to use however you needed. This would be the largest army Israel ever faced. It would be the toughest fight they've ever had. And they would have the bad ground no matter which direction they attacked from. It would be quite easy at this point if you were an Israeli to be tempted to say, you know what? I'm satisfied with the Central Plateau and the South. <laughs> Why don't we just leave these guys be? We got plenty of gland for us. In other words, to not obey God completely. I don't know if anybody thought that, but I do know this. At the very least, Joshua was frightened when he got wind of everything because God in verse 6 says to Joshua, Do not be afraid because of them. The word afraid means to be in a feeling of great distress and concern. There are many circumstances that can make us feel great distress or concern. And you know what? Feeling afraid or concerned because you get bad news isn't sin. I think that's just being human. (laughs) When you hear bad news, you go, what? You know, what are we going to do about that? And that's your first thought. That's just kind of the way we react normally as human beings. That's not sin. Staying afraid or worried or concerned, instead of choosing to remember God's promises, And God's past faithfulness is where we do cross the line into sin. That first initial reaction of, oh, that's normal. That's what Joshua experienced here. But when the Lord has given us precious promises and we have the example of his past faithfulness and we decide to ignore that to stay afraid or concerned, that's when we cross the line into sinful fear. That means you and I must choose to remember what's more real than our problems. You might be thinking, Pastor Will, my problem is incredibly real. (laughs) I'm not belittling that. I'm not denying that. There are things, you know, I face in the course of my life at times where I thought, God, this this is that mountain that needs to be removed. And I see no way to tell it to jump into the sea. I see no way to move it. I mean, I get that. I've been there. But the truth is, whatever problem we face, we honestly don't even know how bad it is. Even if it's really bad, we don't know the extent of how bad it really is because we don't have full knowledge. What's more real then than our understanding of our pro- the problem we face? Well, it has to be the one who gives us promises who does have all knowledge, right? D- do you understand that? If he has all knowledge and he says, yeah, but I'll never leave you forsake you. Yeah, I'll supply all your needs to my riches and glory. Yes, yeah, we'll be with you always even at the end of the age. If that's true, which it is, and he has all knowledge, and he can make those statements having all knowledge, then his promises and his past faithfulness, which has already happened, are indeed more real than the very worst problem I could face.
1: Israel faced the largest and most formidable army they had ever faced. The odds were stacked against them. In human understanding, this would spell the certain end for the nation. But God is the God of the impossible. He fights for his people. He has everything under His control. We need not worry about how things will work out. We need only to obey His Word to us, trust it, and live it out. God is for us. Who can be against us? If you have any spiritual or physical needs, please contact us. We would love to pray for you and assist you in any way we can. You can reach us at Calvary Chapel Orlando at 407-523-0800 during our office hours Tuesday through Friday, 9 a.m. to 4 p.m. This has been In the Word with Pastor Will, a ministry of Calvary Chapel Orlando. You can listen to all of Pastor Will's sermons and find other valuable resources online at www.calvarychapelorlando.com or on the Calvary Chapel Orlando app, available on iTunes and Google Play. Thank you for joining us today. We will see you next time as we continue to learn learn walk and live in the Word.